today in, a, in an awesome time of worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And this morning we're beginning a new series uh, from the book of Daniel called The Daniel Dilemma. And uh, earlier this year, I had the opportunity to uh, go to a, a leadership conference in Birmingham, Alabama at Church of the Highlands. And while I was there, I picked up this book called The Daniel Dilemma. Now, I'm going to let you in on a secret that's really not a secret. And that's that sometimes pastors preach original material. They come up with it, but usually it comes from a lot of different sources. And sometimes we borrow from really, really good sources. And I've, I've had this book for a few months now, and I think it's time that I borrow from this book and this series that uh, Pastor Chris Hodges from, from Church of the Highlands preached and shared with his church. This book has been out, been out about a year. If you like to read, you like good Christian books, this is a good one to get. You can, you can order it right now on Amazon, and then it'll probably be home by the time you finish lunch today. You know how that is, but, but I'm going to pull a lot of what I'm going to say over the next few weeks from this series, from this book, from the message series that he uh, shared. And, and the, the thing about this series, the Daniel Dilemma, what it's all about, it's all about learning how we can stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. Well, if you've been raised in church, or if you've been to Sunday school, or if you raised your kids, or you were raised on Veggie Tales, you know the stories of the book of Daniel. Daniel has some of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. And when you pull up to Daniel, there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. Six of those are history, and six of those are prophecy. The six chapters of history, we learn a lot about Daniel and some of his friends as he has interaction with three different kings. And then the last six chapters that are all prophecy, if you, if you read those, they're sometimes a little difficult to understand exactly what's going on as Daniel has these dreams and visions. But we look at those as end-time prophecies. And when you find the book of Daniel, you'll find it about 13 books from the end of the Old Testament. And it's important that we understand where it is in Scripture because it plays an important role in learning what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. So I don't know if you knew this. Some of you did. Some of you don't. And it'll be like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. But the Old Testament is not put in chronological order. That's why sometimes you read it and you think, why is that there? I thought that happened way back there. But it's, the Old Testament is put together according to categories of books. And so it opens up with the first few books are the books of the law, the books of Moses. And then we have books of the history of Israel, books like uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And then we have the books that are poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you get to the prophets and the prophets that finish out the Old Testament are in two categories, major prophets and minor prophets. And they're not major and minor because one's more important than the other. The major is just long and the minor are just short. 
And Daniel is one of the short minor prophets with only, major prophets with only 12 chapters. Now, like we said, Daniel is half history, half prophecy. But I think that Daniel is placed where it is as a book of prophecy in the prophetic part of Scripture uh, because we can look at the historical things that happened in Daniel and see them as prophecy. And what I mean by that is when you hear the stories in Daniel 1 through 6, you'll understand that those things that happened to Daniel and his friends didn't just happen to them. They will come along and happen generation after generation. So let's, as you're looking at, with me today at Daniel chapter 1, I want us to look together at this. And when you turn and you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, you find that a major change has happened in the history of Israel. Israel has just been taken captive by the Babylonians. And they have been warned and warned and warned all throughout the Old Testament that if you worship other gods, eventually those gods are going to take you over. Or, or God says, I'm just going to give you over to them. And finally, God's mercy and grace at this point in the time of Israel, He said, okay guys, if this is what you want, this is what you get. And He allows the Babylonians to come and take over the nation of Israel. And I believe that as a country, we in the United States, we're facing a similar crisis. I believe we stand at the threshold kind of like the nation of Israel did and we've got to make a decision as a nation, are we going to continue to function as one nation under God as we were founded or are we just going to go in a direction that doesn't have any basis or any truth that we would function and live our lives by? So let's pull up to Daniel and let's see what happens. So it says, in, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now notice that God allows that to happen. God, the Lord, permitted the victory that happened of Nebuchadnezzar taking over. And, and notice that when he takes over, he goes to God's temple and he takes some of the sacred things and takes them and puts them in the Babylonian temple. Now we won't get to that today, but we will get to that over the next few weeks. Now, verse 3, it says, The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, wouldn't you love to have that name? They probably just called him Ash. To bring some of the palace, some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was a wise king, and he said, you know what, we're not just going to bring all these people in and just make them enslaved and just get work out of them for work's sake. But we're going to find the very smartest and the wisest and the best. And we're going to put them to work for us so that we can take advantage of all that they know and all the skills that they have. And it says, he, he was real specific, real specific about what he was looking for. He says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Kind of makes you think about your pastor, don't it? Y'all didn't have to laugh that hard. I like that amen. Praise the Lord. I thought I'd get an amen over here, but you know, I don't, I don't know. Moving on. Make sure. 
Not only are they good looking and healthy and strong, but make sure they're well versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Basically, we're going to reprogram them. They're smart, they're intelligent, they have gifts, but we're going to bring them into our culture, we're going to reprogram them. And the king said, on top of that, we're going to give them the best food. They can have the best food and wine from our kitchen. We'll train them for three years and then we'll put them to work. And then we get the names of our characters that we learn about in the book of Daniel. And so we find Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and these were the four men chosen uh, from the tribe of Judah. And there were a whole lot more than that, but these are the four that we meet. And the chief of staff said, okay, well, you're coming into our culture, and before you start learning everything, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to give you a new name. And look at this. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. I like Daniel better, don't you? Hananiah was called Shadrach. That sounds familiar, don't it? Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now, I want you to notice something. Culture always has an agenda. And we can call it culture, but we know behind culture, there's an enemy, right? There's the devil, okay? And behind culture is the devil, and he's got an agenda, and he has an effect. And the first thing that the, that a, that the culture's agenda is, is to change our identity. To make you believe something about you that's not true. The devil will put a script on your life that doesn't match the script that's currently on your life. He will absolutely change your identity. When I was in high school, I was getting ready to graduate, trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, where I was going to go to college. And I wanted to be a music teacher. So I decided... I need to go to a music school. And so I grew up an NC State fan. So I wanted to go 30 miles from home to NC State. But the problem was NC State is not a music school. They don't have a good music program. They're good in veterinarian and agriculture. And, uh, and that's, that's their strong points in engineering, but not music. So start looking. And I find that there's a school an hour and 15 minutes from home that I never really considered or knew. Had a great music school called East Carolina University. It's in Greenville, North Carolina. It's about uh, an hour or so from the beach. So it put it right between my home and there. And, and I was like, okay, well, I guess this is where I'm going. ECU. And that's, that's where I had planned on going to college. And, and, and so... My identity throughout high school, kind of so you, you understand this, I, I, I tried. Uh, I, I, I tried, to be, tried to be a good Christian guy. I tried to do, uh, I was a Christian, I tried to do what God wanted me to do. And, I, and I'll tell you, I didn't get it all right. And if I could replay, just like all of you, if I could do it over, I'd do a lot of things different. Anybody say amen to that? But, but in a small town that I grew up in, this a lot like small town here, for teenagers, really, in a small town, there's really only one thing to do, and that's party. And partying, who said, whoo, oh, Lord, get in the altar now. Was that my daughter? Oh, Lord Jesus. I'm going to move on. There's only one thing to do, and that's party. And you know what part goes with party? Drinking and having sex. And so I was like, okay, Lord, if I can just make it through high school without drinking and having sex, I'll be good. And that was, that was a lot of my priority in high school. And, and I made it. I made it all the way through without those two things. And as I was getting ready to go to the finish line of high school, and word got out that Les, the Christian guy, 
was going to uh, East Carolina University, I had people who came up to me and they said, uh, man, you're going to ECU? That is a huge party school. Do you not know that? I'm like, yeah, but I'm going for the music. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I had people, I don't remember who they were, but I had people look me in the eye and they said, I know what's going to happen to you. You, you were clean in high school. You're going to go to ECU. You're going to become the biggest drunk there. People spoke that over my life. And you know what it did? It, it scared me because I thought, could that happen? I mean, could I get away from home and get in that environment? And, and when I look back on it, there were people in their words trying to change my identity from who I was trying to follow and be to somebody else. Well, you didn't follow in, college, in high school, but we know you'll go to ECU and move away and you'll become the number one party guy over there and you'll flunk out and you won't make it. Society and culture wants to change your identity. They want to they look at who you are and say, no, that's not who you're going to be. You're going to be somebody else. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel and his friends. And the first thing that happened was they changed their names. I mean, not just their identity. They changed their names. And, and I want to tell you why this is significant. It's because names have meaning. And especially when you go from a Hebrew name to a Babylonian name. Look at this. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. God stands for me. God is over me. But his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, means lady, protect the king. The first thing the Babylonians did was change the gender of Daniel's name. They gave him a girl name. An inherent part of all of our identity is our names, right? And in every pagan culture, there's always been gender confusion. And that's because the devil isn't just after us to make us sexually impure. He's actually after us to destroy our relationships because when we get gender confusion, we get relationship problems that allow dominoes to fall that have a lasting effect from generation to generation. Now that name also switched from Daniel, God is my judge, the focus being on God, to the focus being on a human. And at least on paper, Daniel's identity changed from a man who's held accountable by God to now a man who his accountability is that I'm under a king. To Daniel, it was a terrible insult for his name to be changed like that. Daniel's new name was the antithesis of his Hebrew name. What about Hananiah? Hananiah's name meant Yahweh has been gracious. God is good he is gracious to me, to Shadrach, which means I'm fearful of God. His Babylonian name means, no, you need to be afraid of God. God's not for you. You need to hate God. Church stinks. And not only does the devil want to mess up your relationships, he also wants to mess up your spirituality. See, the Babylonians inverted the focus from God being good, Yahweh's been gracious, to God being bad. I'm fearful of God. Do you see that? Now look at the next one. Mishael means who is what God is. Listen to the confidence behind that. We kind of sang that this morning. Who is what God is. God is great. He's awesome. He's mighty. Great are you Lord. Who is what God is to Abednego. I'm sorry to uh, Meshach. Which means I am despised. Contemptible and humiliated. I'm ashamed. I'm a coward. Notice his name goes from meaning Something of confidence to now cowardice. And then Azariah. 
Azariah's name means Yahweh has helped. God is with me. He makes my life whole and successful to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. No, you're going to be a slave. You're going to serve somebody else. Instead of being a son of God, of Yahweh, you're now going to be a slave of culture. And in every case, the Hebrews' new names obliterated the true nature of God that had been represented by the, the Hebrew names and now reoriented their identity to become people who served what Babylonian names they had. Notice how each of those names kind of lines up with what happens in our culture today. Are we in a culture that's trying to redefine gender? Are we in a culture that's trying to redefine marriage? That happened with the name of Daniel. You might have seen this article right here that was on uh, the news this week. The headline says, New York residents can choose gender-neutral X option on birth certificates, new law says. I, I said we're at the threshold of making a decision. I'm afraid in many of many places in our country, we've already walked through the door and left Jesus in the other room and the laws of God. Do you realize what this means? This means that now in New York, when a baby is born, they, they have another choice besides male and female. They can put an X and say, well, we'll just decide that later. That also means that if somebody is, has a birth certificate that distinguishes them as male or female, they can go back on it now and just put an X. Well, I'm, I'm just still trying to figure that out. I don't mean to be crude, but, you know, when a baby's born, the first thing the doctor looks at is what? What is the sex of that baby? And, and I, I don't think anything's changed in thousands of years of history from the time the first child came into this world. When you pull that baby out, we all look in one spot, and you can tell if it's a boy or a girl, right? It's a boy, it's a girl, okay? Common sense has left the building. And our culture now knocks on the door and says, look, the, the, the most basic things that we know are now not black and white anymore. It just is crazy. And, and our culture is now trying to reshape so that we say, okay, this is what God designed this child to be. And, and that's not it. Culture says we've got a better design. But we know that's not true, right? We know that God creates every one of us with a purpose we don't need to acquiesce to what culture has to say. So here's the thing, watch this. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. We must know that we live in a world where people, they become adept at doing what's right in their own eyes. And even to the point of, uh, of gender identity just flipping all over the place. You're not what the world, you're not what God has said you are. You're what we'll say you are. But the truth is, we don't have the privilege of identifying ourselves. God has already done that. God in our DNA has our purpose and who we're supposed to be and what He wants us to be. We're already defined by God. So when culture shifts, we must know who we are. We also must know whose we are. My dad has a saying that he's, uh, and he, he started saying it over my kids and his grandkids. Uh, he didn't say it. I don't know if he said it that much over us, but he's been saying it over his grandkids for years. And it's what we just said. And I found this saying on a, on, on a little plaque. And I, I bought one of these for this. I got this off Brock's wall this morning. And we got one of these for Brock and Jaden. 
uh, I'm sorry, Brock and Trent, uh, for Christmas last year. And it says, remember who you are and whose you are. Look at me, teenagers, young adults. Remember who you are and whose you are. Don't ever forget that. Because culture wants to shift us in a different place. You know, I, sometimes the Lord will give you ideas and, uh, and, and you'll just know it's too good of an idea to have been mine. It was God's idea. And the Lord gave me one of these ideas years ago when I was a youth pastor. We had a service that landed on a, uh, a Valentine's Day night. I don't know, some of my old students probably might be in here and might remember that night. But it landed on a Valentine's Day night. So naturally, I was going to talk about the love of God and as it relates to Valentine's Day. And that, that day, the Lord gave me an idea and the Lord put it in my spirit to go buy one long stem rose for every girl in our youth group. And I went and bought a ton of long stem roses and I talked about the love of God. And at the end of the message, I asked all the girls to come to the front. And I gave every one of those girls a long stem rose on Valentine's Day. Now, most of those girls did not have boyfriends so ladies, girls, did that mean a lot to them on that day? It surely did. But you know what I did when I, when I gave it to them? I said, girls, I want you to know something. I want you to know, I, I don't want you to see that it's your youth pastor giving you this rose tonight. I want you to realize that God loves you so much that he gave me this idea today, late in the day, and I ran up on Valentine's Day and didn't even know if I could get enough roses and got enough and gave them here. And this rose tonight is not from your youth pastor, it's from Jesus. And I want to tell you, the emotion in that room, it was, it was, a, it was one of the most powerful moments I've ever had in ministry. Because I could just see how, how the Lord had stepped into that moment and, and just was loving on those girls in that moment. And what we were saying to them was that, don't forget whose you are, girls. Don't forget whose you are. And I say that to all of us today as culture shifts. Don't forget who you are and don't forget whose you are. You are His. Amen? All right, let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Now, notice, okay, the king has said, okay, you've got to eat this wine and this food, okay? Do you think it was good? It was from the king's table and kitchen, right? I mean, probably was really good, but here's the problem with it. Good Jewish boys can't eat food that's been offered to idols. So these good Jewish boys said, no, we, we can't eat that food. And, and I wonder if they said, you know, they're renaming us. We'll just keep calling each other the Hebrew names. We can't, we can't do anything about them calling us by these names. But we can do something absolutely about what we're given to eat. And Daniel determined. He was determined not to defile himself by eating the food. And so look what, it, look what the scripture said. He asked for permission. He didn't say, I ain't eating this food. It's going to make me go to hell, you crazy hellions. In a culture that was shifting, he said, you know, I hope you understand. And remember, Daniel and these, these guys, they're young. I mean, they're like teenagers. Look at the boldness of Daniel. He asked for permission not to eat these foods. And that's the next thing I want you to see is that culture does not want you to stand up for what you believe. Culture wants you to compromise your standards. Culture says, okay, you believe this way, but don't stand up for that. You need to, you need to do something else. And we all feel, no matter our age, it doesn't matter our age anymore, we all feel the pressure of culture coming against us. 
Where we're in this dilemma where what are we going to do and who are we going to serve and uh, uh, culture puts the pressure on us. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll take the, the plumb line of God's Word, which God's Word sits here and says, this is how I'm supposed to rule my life with it. And we'll move the plumb line way out here and we'll say, well, I'll just pick parts of it because, uh, because culture says this and that. And, and it won't be the thing that, that, that rules and reigns and governs our lives. It's, it's what we talked about a little bit last week about this whole thing about relative truth. What's true for you, it might not be true for me. And the enemy will work this new narrative in our lives and we won't uh, live lives the way we want to. But I want you to see something this morning, okay? God's standard, God's law, it is for you. It's on your side. It's not against you. So many times I think we look at God's law and we say, God, why did you sit up in heaven? And why did you make this law and create this and make it so hard? And make it so difficult? Why did you come up with all these rules, God? Why, why did, you, did you just try to make it impossible for me to do what's right? But listen, everything God has put in His Word is not good for God. It's good for you. I'm going to say that again because it's worth repeating. Everything in this book, it wasn't good for God. It's good for you. Just take a walk with me in a, in a utopia world for a second, okay? Imagine if... If everybody on this planet, okay, this is just common sense. If everybody on this planet followed everything in this world, in this word, in the book, what would our planet be like? One of the very first things I think about is we would have complete families. Divorce would be gone. Adultery would be gone. Lies would be gone. Men would love their wives as, as Christ loved the church. And women would respect their husbands the way they should. And that would mean children would grow up the way they should. That's the first thing that I can think of. If we lived our, our lives by God's word, then we wouldn't have addictions to drugs and alcohol and pornography and all these other things because we would follow by God's word. All this Garbage we've been dealing with in our political system for the last few months would not exist because we would tell the truth. Think about it. God's Word wasn't made for God. It was made for us. It works. If we put it in our lives, it will work. And so we got to understand that when culture shifts, we've got to reaffirm our convictions. We've got to say... As the shift takes place, I will not be moved. I will stand on the Word of God no matter what happens. Daniel said, okay, you want me to eat this food and drink this wine, but I'm not going to do it. Please let me have another alternative. Now, let's see what the alternative was in Daniel chapter 1 verse 9. It says that the Lord had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. God had given him favor. And, and he looked at Daniel favorably. And he responded to Daniel and he said, Look, you know, if I do this, the king's going to see it and I'm going to get in trouble and I could lose my head. You're supposed to have a certain thing to eat and to drink. And Daniel said, Well, look, let's do this. I'm going to make a deal with you. And he said, Here's the deal, okay? I'm not going to ask for a year or six months or a month, but ten days. For ten days, let me eat just vegetables and water, Okay? That was the, the Babylonian Hebrew keto diet, I guess. All right, just give me vegetables and water for 10 days and then check us out. 
And that's what Daniel says. And so culture wants to change our identity. It wants us to compromise our standards. But culture also doesn't want us to stand up for what we believe. Culture doesn't want us to stand flat-footed and footed and say, you know, we don't want to do that. But what it'll do, it will create a confrontation. Culture creates a confrontation. And many of us are feeling it now. At school and at college and on the job and in our families and in different situations. Culture creates a confrontation. And our faith is going to be tested just like Daniel's faith was tested. So, this kid from North Carolina I was talking about, who couldn't go to NC State and he goes to East Carolina. I get to East Carolina, and, and before I even can get to school, I have to do this weekend thing, where you have to do like two nights there at, on, at the school. You got to register for classes, and you got to um, uh, tour the school and go to meetings and all that stuff. So I was doing that in June, starting school in August. I had a roommate for the fall. I had found a guy at my high school who was like me. He wasn't a partner, and we knew we could room together, and we'd be in good shape. But I was rolling the dice for this, this weekend preview deal. I didn't know who my roommate was going to be. So here I am going for this first weekend at East Carolina, all right? And I go, and I get in my room. I'm waiting for my roommate to show up. I'm awfully nervous of what this is going to look like. And this guy walks in. And, uh, and he was a Holy Ghost-filled man. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he said, uh, we get to talking, and uh, he said he was from New Jersey. Well, my first question was, how in the world does a guy from New Jersey wind up in Greenville, North Carolina, going to East Carolina? I said, how did you wind up here? This is what he said. I found a magazine that gave a list of the top party schools on the East Coast, and East Carolina was number one. Boom, I mean, well, thank you, brother. This is my roommate for the next two days. Culture will create a confrontation. So I'm like, oh, wow, what is this going to be like? Okay, it's only two days. And so I don't, I don't see, I'm like, okay, all right, wow, wow. I mean, this is a party school. I mean, they come from near and wide. Just to, I mean, <laughs> so I, I met somebody at the school of music that I, that I became uh, just acquainted with. And, and we decided that that night, we were going to go downtown where all the partying took place. And I just was like, okay, this is it. I'm just going to go down there and see what it's all about. I'm going to walk around here, see what is all the big deal about this party. And as we're walking around, I see this guy in handcuffs being put in a police car. And we're walking and I'm looking. I said, I think that dude's my roommate. <laughs> and so... I'm like, wow, that's unbelievable. So I get back to the room, and I realize he's not there. And this guy was my roommate that was getting arrested. Well, look, this country boy from the sticks, I got scared. I'm like, if he's getting arrested, they'll tell him what this guy do to me. So I get my wallet, y'all, and I put it in my pillowcase, and I go to bed with my hand on my wallet just laying there. <laughs> when is this guy going to come back in the room? And I'm praying, you know, Lord, help me. You know, and I'm thinking, what, what if I got myself into I mean, here we go. We're in college now, boy, you're on your own. And in the middle of the night, door flies open, light comes on. I'm like, man, you know, I'm asleep. And I wake up and I sit up. He, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I sat up and I said, dude, are you all right? He tried to play it off. What do you mean? What do you mean? I said, did I see you getting arrested a few hours ago? And he's like, yeah, that was me. 
okay. And I got back in the bed and put my hand on my wallet and went to sleep. <laughs> the next day, no lie, we're sitting in a meeting, thousands of freshmen sitting in this meeting. And I'm sitting beside one of my friends that I went to high school with. And she's going to ECU too. And we're sitting beside each other. And so they get up and they say, this big speech, we know that you understand ECU is a party school, but we don't put up with underage drinking. As a matter of fact, we had a young man who wanted to attend here school in the fall. And now we've sent him home because last night he got arrested trying to participate in underage drinking. As my roommate. <laughs> Culture will create a confrontation. Every time, you know, when you decide, okay, this is how I'm going to live, you will be tested. Am I right? You're going to be tested, and you've got to be ready for it, okay? So let's, let's look at this. So when culture shifts, as the church, as believers, we've got to respond in the right way. Now, there's two ways that we can respond, and historically, the church doesn't respond the right way. I'm sorry. I'm a part of the church, but historically, we don't respond the right way because we'll do it one of two ways, either the dogmatic response and this is how we respond to somebody dogmatically. We'll say something like this. I know that you're wrong and I'm right and I don't care and I'm right and you're going to hell. You're wrong and I'm right. And you may be technically right, but it's not helpful. God didn't call us to be right. He called us to be effective. Let that sink in God didn't call us to be right he called us to be effective and maybe you are right but if it's not helping the person it's wrong even in its rightness so you got the dogmatic response and then you got the love response let's, let's just let them all in as they are they don't need to change anything God loves everybody and in the name of love a generation of Christians are setting the Bible aside thinking that they love people more than God loves people. And they do it all in the name of love and that's not right either. We can't move God's truth around on the plumb line that way. So what do we do in the middle of all that? Well, I believe that as Daniel was in that dilemma, there's a balance. There's a place where we find balance. And I, I heard Chris Hodges, who wrote this book, he was talking about the cover of the book. Put that up for me, Chris. And, and as he was talking to his team, he was saying, how do we, what do we put on the cover of this book as we're talking about how do we balance grace and truth? And they came up with this idea that you see up there, the scale. And that balancing grace and truth and, and love in the Word of God is like a scale. We need to find a place where we balance, we strike a balance as Christians between the two. That's what Daniel did. He had this unbelievable ability to stay firm and influence his generation at the same time. And I'm afraid, listen, that many times as Christians, the culture is shifting so quickly that we will back up in our corner and say, I, I just want to survive. It's going faster than I can imagine, and all I want to do is survive. I, don't talk to me, Pastor, about influence in the culture. I just need to survive till I get to heaven. God does not have you and me here in 2018 in the middle of a cultural shift in the United States for us to get in the corner and hide. He wants us to influence our culture just like Daniel did and just like Jesus did. Here's Jesus, fully holy, 
completely righteous, the Son of God. And as he sits, you see him with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors and sinners sitting at his feet. And he's loving them and caring for them and giving them truth all at the same time and never compromising who he was. How did he do it? Well, look look what John says. John says that when the Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us, we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of both. Okay? It's not like, you know, sometimes what we were describing a moment ago, sometimes the church has got a lot of truth and no grace. Or there's a lot of churches out there that we're all love. Everybody come in and no truth. But look at what Jesus did. Jesus, look at that word. The, one of the most important words in that verse. And the Lord hit me with it yesterday. Full. Two tanks that Jesus ran off of. One tank was full of grace. And another tank was full of truth. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. Truth is the Word of God. When Jesus was praying in John 17, 17, He said, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. And this is who we've got to be as a church. We must stand on the truth of the Word of God. We can't budge off of that. Culture changes, but God's Word doesn't change because God, the author, doesn't change. But we can't stay there because if we just stay on truth, nobody's qualified to come. We've got to have grace, which is God's favor. And that's when He favors us when we're not favorable. That's when He loves us when we spit in His face. That's what we talked about last week when we said that Jesus, hanging on the cross, looks at the very religious leaders who had just said, crucify Him, we'll take Barabbas, you crucify the Messiah. And Jesus looked down at them and said, Father, forgive them. They know what, not, not, I'm sorry, they know not what they're doing. And And you know one way we can be like Jesus, y'all need to hear this, is as we look at this shifting culture, we need to look down like Jesus did and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we don't need to do that sarcastically. I mean, it's easy to say, Lord, they don't have no idea what's going on anymore. But we need to do it with love like Jesus did. We need His grace because favor and His grace is something we can't earn. You know, you can't come to church enough and be baptized enough and give enough and serve enough and some of us have been in church since we were born. But that does not qualify you for heaven. It is only God's grace. Paul said it this way, God saved you by His grace when you believed And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. I think Paul tells us that because he knows how, as human beings, we take credit for it, wouldn't we? Well, it was because I didn't do this, this, and this. No. He says salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. So none of us can boast about it. we got to have truth and grace. Look at this. Without truth, we are corrupt. We would just be worldly, carnal, carnal, ungodly people. But God's Word calls us to a place where we can be changed and not driven by our sinful nature. Without truth, we're corrupt. But without grace, we're condemned. If we don't have grace, we don't have forgiveness. We can't do enough to get saved. Without grace, we've got to have the grace that God gives. 
Chris Hodges is telling a story about sitting down with a group of people, with a guy, and he was sharing the gospel with him. And he asked him, he, he said, you know, what, what, where do you think, if, if we drew a line, and he took out a napkin and he drew a line, he'd put a zero on one end and drew a line and put 100 on the other end. He said, what number would you have to hit to get into heaven? And he said, let's say zero is Hitler and 100 is Jesus. What number do you have to hit to get into heaven? And the guy looked at the, the, the list, the, the line there, and he, he kind of went high. He said, well, 75. You know, he kind of tipped the scales way over here, 75. And he said, that, that's not it. He, he said, well, well, what is it? And, and Pastor Chris said, it's 100. 100? He said, I can't do that. He said, exactly. We can't do it without His grace. All of us who say, I'll never get to 100. You know what the scripture says? Be holy as He is holy. I hear that and I'm like, I can't do that. I'm more on numbers that are much lower than that. But we can all be to 100 because we're covered by the grace of God. Amen? Listen to this. Without truth, we become worldly. If I don't have the truth of God's word, I'm more like the world. And guess what? Without this, I don't have any answers for everybody else and all the stuff that they're going through. I need God's truth for my problems. Anybody still need God's truth for your attitude? For your language? To know how to treat your wife better and know how to raise your kids and know what to think. Sometimes I need this thing just pounded in my head. I need to do one of the old Pentecostal things on myself. Hit myself with my Bible. I need God's truth. Anybody else? Because without it I become worldly. But without grace we become judgmental. And what will happen is we'll look at our own pile, our own trash heap of sin and we'll look at it and we'll say, well this is all my stuff and this is, this is the things I deal with, but my pile's not as big as his pile. And we'll think, you know what? Maybe that's what will get me into heaven. I, I'm standing in a pile of mess, but I'm not in as much mess as they are. No, without grace we become judgmental. Because we realize this, God will never have to forgive us for anything more than what we're going to have to forgive somebody else for. We're all equal ground at the foot of the cross. Really, to sum it up, it's like this. Truth without grace is just mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. But truth and grace together is just good medicine. It brings healing. It brings help. And I believe that God is moving us. I'm amazed as I've been preparing this message over the last few weeks and thinking about, well, Lord, here you go again, putting this whole thing together. And what I'm saying through this message of Daniel is what we've been saying so many times this year that we've been called to love our city. Because love your city means, we've said that our, our vision statement is that we hear his heart, truth. And show His love, grace. The balance is right there. Our slogan for a long time around here was, Where the hurting find the healer. Does anybody remember that? That was a great slogan. And we didn't change it because it just wasn't good anymore. But do we want to be a church where the hurting find the healer? Absolutely. We were, we were worshiping around here a few weeks ago on a Sunday night, having a night of worship. And we landed on this song called Holy Ground. 
And as we began to sing the lyrics to this song, it was the next to the last song of the night. And the lyrics in the bridge go, chains fall, fear bow, hear now, Jesus, you change everything. Lives healed, hope found, hear now, Jesus, you change everything. And as we began to sing that song, I just felt led that night. I, I, I interrupted the worship at that moment and I said, we need to pray those words over our church. That if we're going to be a love your city church, that when people walk in these doors, they feel and they sense and they know the love of Jesus. That when people come in here, chains can fall and fear can bow and lives are healed and hope is found. We have hope and people need it. Amen? See, grace invites us to be free. Jesus says, I know what you did. And you're still welcome. But it's the truth that sets us free. The grace is great, but i got to have the truth to set me free from all the junk, right? Probably the most familiar story that goes along with this. I want to close with this story this morning. It's found in John chapter 8. And, and many of you will know this story. Even folks outside of the church know part of this story. But it's, it's the story of, of Jesus and... In, 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 uh, one of his most famous acts of grace. And it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives early the next morning. He's back at the temple. He's, he's there and he's doing what he does every day. He's there in the temple and he's teaching. And he's sitting down and he's teaching. And watch this. It says, as he's speaking in the middle of his sermon, the Pharisees and the religious leaders interrupt him by bringing in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. They bring her in and drop him at his feet in the middle of the sermon. Now the first thing I look at when I say that, I see that is why were the priests and the religious leaders in a place where they could have caught a woman in the act of adultery? Let's just leave that right there, okay? They put her in front of the crowd. And they said, teacher, <laughs> this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to her, what do you say? That question right there is the question the world is looking at us and asking us as culture shifts. Church, what do you say? What are you going to do with these laws and these changes and these groups of people? What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. They're like, Jesus, <laughs> you either got to go grace or truth here, pal. We got you. The, the genuine gotcha moment. And it says that Jesus stooped down in the dust with his finger. He's been teaching and preaching and they brought this woman in. It's like he goes into his own little world. He reaches over and he starts drawing in the dirt. I think he was doing that because he was giving them the moment to think about what they were doing. And I think this is a good example for us because when people bring stuff to us and they throw it in front of us and they say, what are you going to say about this? We need to do what Jesus did and we need to hit the pause button. Because a lot of times what we want to do is we want to rile up and go right back at Him, don't we? 
you're saying that? We get righteous indignation, don't we? I mean, we'll make it holy that we get angry and irritated. But look at what Jesus did. Jesus is patient. He's taking a moment. He's hitting the pause button. He's just, he just doing this. And he must have done it for, for a little while because it says they kept demanding an answer. Jesus is down there and he's just writing in the dirt. So then he stands up again and he says, All right. Let the one here who has never sinned throw the first stone. I can imagine that they're all standing there. They all got these big rocks in their hands. They're ready to go. And then he stooped down and he started writing in the dust again. Now there's a lot of different theories about what he was writing. Some people say he was writing maybe a a famous wise saying. Some people have said that he was writing their names all their names he was writing their names I like what one person said they said I I wonder if Jesus was writing the names of their mistresses Sally Jane Martha and as he wrote their names the scripture says as he's writing whatever he's writing in the dust These old boys standing here with the rocks. One by one. Starting with the oldest. Probably because they had the most sin. The oldest to the youngest. Walk out until only Jesus is left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Guys, this is so Jesus. And this is something we need to take home with us today. Jesus waits till everybody else is gone. And it's just one on one just caring for her in that intimate moment not to embarrass her she had already been incredibly embarrassed but they're all gone and in that moment Jesus in a personal non-humiliating way has this conversation with her look at it and he stood up and he said where are your accusers is there not even one person left here to accuse you didn't even one of them condemn you and Jesus said neither She says, no, Lord. Look how she responds. Lord. She recognizes who He is. Let's let's think about the, the logistics of the moment. She couldn't have been far away logistically to have been drug out of a bed committing adultery to be brought to the temple. So that tells me she knew who she was in front of. She had heard about a man named Jesus. And she knows she's in front of the Lord. And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And when he said that, this is what he was saying. Neither do I, grace. Go and sin no more, truth. Full of grace and truth. Perfectly balanced, grace and truth. And that brings us today to this point to say, As a church, we're called. We must hold high God's truth. we got to do that. We've got to hold it high. We're not going to change God's word for our culture, but at the same time, we must freely give God's grace to every person in need. Is this easy to do? No, I'm not telling you today this is easy. Because every, every part of the way we've been trained in church is I'm just sorry. I don't know why, but we've not done a good job with this. Anybody else agree with that? Or do y'all think we're all hitting home runs on this? I think we need to do better. 
we as us, the church, Rankin Church of God, we as a church as a whole, let us hold high God's truth and freely give God's grace. Let's be Jesus to those around us. Let's stand this morning as we close. And I want us to pray two things this morning. I want us to pray this morning for us as the body of Christ today that we would hear the word of God today and say, you know, we need to say, God help us. Culture has placed before us a confrontation. And the only way we can correctly navigate that, that confrontation is with God's help. Does anybody agree with that? I, I can't navigate this without His help. That's the first thing we're going to pray about. The next thing we're going to pray about is there might be somebody here or somebody's here today. You heard all that sermon, but the part that hit you was the very end because you are the woman you are the person who has that sin in your life. And maybe it, maybe it has been drug out in front of other people and it hasn't been handled the right way. Or maybe it's secret sin. Maybe it, nobody's gone and pulled it out from the place where it's at. But today, you hear and you sense and you feel the Holy Spirit today saying through this story that Jesus is here and He has grace and love and mercy to forgive whatever it is that you brought in with you today two groups of people and I don't know where you might be in that today but I feel like that we need to come to a place of response today you know I know sometimes we get to this point in the service and I've preached long and it's we're all hungry but you know what we 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 worship we give we fellowship we hear the word this is the most important time that we respond to what God has said Let's create a new habit in the room of saying, you know what? When, when the message is over, we're not done yet. I, I'm not, and I'm, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm going to stop. This is the most important part for us to respond to what God has to say. There's nothing in the rest of my day that's more important. Nothing in the rest of my week that's more important than leading you in this moment. Because there's somebody here that might need that grace we're talking about. Let's just close our eyes all over the house this morning. And is there, is there anybody here to say less? I, that is me. I find myself in the shoes of that woman. And there's, there's stuff in my life. I'll just call it stuff that I need to bring to Him. And I need the grace of Jesus Christ today. Will you lift your hand and put it right back down? Go. Anybody else? Thank you. One, two, three, four, five. Oh my goodness, six. Anybody else? I need the grace of God in my life today. Oh, thank you. Seven. Anybody else? I need the grace of God to just flow over me today. I, I, eight. I need forgiveness today. Something in my life. Nine. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Let's pray right now. And as we pray, you know, everybody who raised their hand and those that didn't, we all need the grace of God today. I need it. I need all His grace I can get. I need Him to pull up with, a, with an 18-wheeler full of grace today. And as we come to Him today, can we just together pray? And if that's you right now where you're at, 
I want you just to receive the forgiveness and love of the Father today. And whatever that is, the Scripture says He is faithful and just to forgive us. He is faithful and just to give us eternal life, to wash our sins away. And whatever it might be today, Jesus comes with grace and mercy and love to you today. As we pray, will you just submit that to Him and confess that to Him? Lord, right now as we come to You, Lord Jesus, we sense Your presence and we sense Your love and we sense You working in the room. And Lord, these hands that went up, multiple hands, and even more hands that of people who didn't raise their hands, but God, we all come in with stuff today. And Lord, we confess our sins before You today. We confess our battles before You today. We confess, Lord, that this life requires us to have and need Your grace. We confess today that we need You, Lord, to forgive us, God. Every hand that went up today, God, the way, Jesus, that You cared for that woman caught in adultery, may You care for them. May Your grace and Your love pour right into their hearts right now. Lord, I pray that whatever it is that they brought in here today, God, as they pray and as they seek You in this moment, that God, You would just allow that, Lord, just to, just to fall off of them today. God, I pray that You would just give them grace and mercy today, that they will sense Your peace today in Jesus' name. And together as a church today, can we together pray right now that as we go into this series and we go into our week tomorrow, that God will open up our minds and hearts and help us to find a balance so that we can stand firm and love well. God, we thank you for your word today. And as a church today, we ask, God, that you would give us the spirit of Daniel, the ability to be able to look at our culture and see the situations and God, to stand firm and love well. Jesus, fill us with your spirit, with the ability that you had to be able to share the truth and love full of grace, full of truth. And God, right now we submit to you and we say, Lord, we're, we're, we're out of balance. God, many times we've got too much truth and not enough grace. God, fill us up with more grace. Lord, if we're on the other side and we, we've got too much grace and not enough truth, balance us out this morning. And God, help us to be your hands and feet. Genuinely being your hands and feet, Jesus, means that we are full of grace and full of truth. And Lord, may that get off the platform and into our hearts today. And may it get into our jobs and our families and in our communities and in the classroom. And in, the, in, the, in Walmart and in the restaurant and everywhere we go, Lord, that we are ambassadors of your grace and truth. God, help us to stand firm and love well. Help us to hear your heart and show your love in everything we do. We can't do it without you. And we thank you for that that you give us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you today. Thank you for being here for worship. We will see you back Wednesday night for Family Ministries tonight. Testing, testing.